grandma again. I had Christmas with my grandma Harry, and that's her last name, just you know. Um, <laughs> and and then we were off to Christmas at my great grandma Peg's. Great grandma Peg's was the last Christmas that we were going to. And you guys know what do you want when you when you're when you're a kid? What do you want for Christmas? Presents, yeah. But squishmallows, yeah. Squishmallows are what? They're a kind of stuffy. Okay. <laughs> and stuffies are kinds of toys, right? And squishy. And yes. I know that. Yes, that's the kind of thing you want. So we had gotten to the point where I'm gonna get let you in on a secret. All these grown-ups that buy you the presents, whether they're your parents or your grandparents or your aunts and uncles and whoever else, sometimes they run out of ideas for cool toys. Like, I know you would like every squishy ever, but they, they don't know that. You're, they just don't know that. So I was at the point where I, I'd probably gotten, like, I don't know, a racetrack. You guys don't know what slot cars are, do you? They were really cool. I had probably gotten some nice race car slot cars, some things like that. But we were at the point where I was getting a lot of clothes. And I'm at my last, my last stop for Christmas, my great-grandma Peg's house. And I opened up my, my present from my great-grandma Peg. And it was either, I'm pretty sure it was a sweater. It was either a sweater or socks. It was definitely something neat. <laughs> and I, being that this was my last stop on Christmas, and I was, I was a little tired of getting clothes at that point, maybe just tired of, of, of being tired, and I started to cry that it wasn't toys. And again, I'm like four or five years old, and so I, for crying at Great Grandma Peg's uh, present of a sweater, I got sent to a bedroom to go Calm down, I guess. <laughs> and I remember my, my grandma, Nita, she came in um, and she read me a story and, and the life moved on. I do remember very clear, clearly my great-grandma Peg, who had to be well into her 80s at that point in life, maybe 90 years old. And she was just making this face like, what's wrong? Why would this be a problem? Now, I'm telling you that story because I think, I think every kid has some story like that, where maybe they didn't get exactly what they wanted for Christmas. And, and you never, you know, that doesn't go well. You know, it doesn't go well if you cry when you get a present, right? That, that said, what I want you guys to think about every Christmas is, is number one, we always want to be grateful for the gifts that we get. And, I'm, and it's cool that you guys have gotten to open stuff already. I know your parents are glad to give you good gifts when they can. But we always want to remember, and you may have heard this already, but it's, it's as simple as this, and we need to remind ourselves of this all the time, is that the greatest gift we can ever get is Jesus Christ. And just like I cried when I got a sweater because I didn't really want it, sometimes naturally we don't think of Christ as the gift that we want. A lot of times we reject Jesus. We don't want to believe him. We don't want to follow him. But when we truly remember that he's the gift that God gave us to eternal life, that should uh, make us joyful and that should make us grateful. And so that's what I, something I want you guys to remember, not just at Christmas, but all the time. And you guys are here regularly, so I know you hear it from me and from Sunday school and from children's church. But again, that's what I want us to focus on today. Gratitude for the greatest gift that is Jesus Christ. So let's pray that this morning. Lord God, we thank you for your great gift giving, that you give us all that you give out of love, and that you know what the best gifts for us are. We don't always know what the best gifts are. You give us just what we need, and we complain when we don't get what we want. And so we pray that you change our hearts, understand that our greatest need is forgiveness from our sins, and we get that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the great gift you've given to this
Make us grateful, make us joyful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can go back to and sit with your folks. And with that, um, I can only rise and we'll prepare to hear
And with that, let's hear from the word we have from Luke chapter 2, 8 to 20. Very familiar passage to us this morning. We'll have that before you. There we go. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherd, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. I was uh, fortunate enough to deliver a Christmas message uh, here with this church four years ago. And at the time, uh, we, we did have a Christmas Eve service that year, and Tim had delivered the um, Christmas Eve message. And so I did the ones, the, the Sunday closest to Christmas right after that. And for those of you who remember how often Tim liked to use movies for his illustrations, I remember that year he, of course, used the classic Charlie Brown Christmas as his illustration. And I, in response right after him, I used my favorite Christmas episode of King of the Hill um, as my <laughs> Christmas illustration. I'm going to spare you from that. I won't give you that one again for the illustration. But um, I'm looking back at that time uh, in my life again. We're talking about four years ago now. And uh, I know that was a time that I was often not at peace, um, at least not when left to my own thoughts. Uh, I had graduated from seminary five years ago, and when I did, I think there was this kind of general assumption that I was just going to go off and search for a pastor job somewhere else. And to a certain degree, I understand why that was that was the assumption, but it was just never that simple for me, um, because I, as I've shared in other illustrations when I'm preaching, um, you know, I've been underwater on my house and probably still was at that time. Uh, the majority of my military career has been uh, committed to the Maryland National Guard. And uh, just for your information, it's not impossible to change to another state's National Guard, but it's really not easy. A lot of people I know who move away, they end up just flying back to Maryland um, to finish the National Guard service. And, uh, and, and it just really wasn't worth the time to go anywhere at that time for me, um, as I had all the, the exams to do um, for my licensure to uh, preach. And there were a lot of them, and they were basically as hard as doing the classes that I was for grad school, and I'm balancing that while I'm still working full-time and having family and service to the church. And so all of that is to say that a few years ago, I was feeling very, very stuck. I just wasn't going anywhere. 
And when I feel stuck, I feel unproductive. And when I feel unproductive, I, I just don't feel very peaceful. You know, my wife could uh, tell you how often I just lay in bed, just, just kind of like irritated that I can't move forward on whatever it is. And, uh, you know, the, the, the general sentiment at, the, at that time was, we've got to figure out how to get out of here. I can't, I'm stuck here. I can't move on. And so in terms of any sort of emotional peace, it all felt like get, it depended on getting unstuck to me. And so I use that to just to talk about the, this natural feeling that we want of peace. And as we focus on that, I want us to focus on two ideas this morning. First, that the birth of Christ was to bring glory to God above all else. And second, the birth of Christ was to bring peace to us, but not peace according to our own definitions, but rather a peace that glorifies God. The kind of peace that can only come from the highest heavens to solve our greatest problems here on earth. And that those greatest problems are the problems of sin and death and hell. So as we move on, let's first talk about glory to God. Here in Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 14, we have those angels making, it's not on the next one, I just leave it on the big, uh, the big uh, slide, thank you. Um, we have the angels making that declaration, glory to God in the highest. And that's a pretty clear statement uh, that what's going on here is to show God's greatness above all else. And now I know we here as Reformed Presbyterians, uh, we very often, I may very well know off the top of our heads, Westminster Shorter Catechism for question number one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So glory is one of those church words that we use all the time, much like praise and honor. And I think sometimes uh, we use it over and over, maybe we don't give it enough thought. The simple dictionary definition uh, for glory, if you use the Google Dictionary or Merriam-Webster, maybe, um, it's high renown or honor, won by notable achievements or magnificence or great beauty. And so the short end of it is here, if we think of, we think of glory, the birth of Christ shows God's greatness and his, his magnificent achievement that the Son of God has come himself and born among men. We frequently use the term that he has condescended to us. He's come down. And that is a great work that he's done that we can, we can declare that greatness. And so the setting of this God-glorifying birth of Christ, it's of course no accident. God doesn't do anything by accident. Some of you may have heard or read things saying that if only we understand the birth narrative, in his correct historical context, then that would just change how we know everything, how we imagine everything about this birth. Um, and maybe you might have heard discussion about the first bit of Luke 2, uh, the verses that we didn't read before this, where maybe we imagine Mary and Joseph wandering around and looking for a room, uh, the way we look for a motel, maybe you've heard, that, well, that's, that's all wrong. Uh, maybe they're more likely just trying to stay in a guest room with a private residence, or maybe if you've heard that if we're imagining them uh, in a stable out in the field, well then we're off the uh, then we're off the mark. We need to imagine them something more in like a, a courtyard or even a bathroom where the animals might have been. Maybe it's something like that. And this of course leads to what the shepherds were told uh, in the part of the story we read in Luke two twelve. And this will be a sign for you: you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
And I went and bothered to look up manger in a Bible encyclopedia, and it lets me know that our modern conception um, of a wooden trough in, in, in a wooden barn, those are influenced by Renaissance art, and uh, uh, the, the manger was more likely uh, made of stone. Now I'm saying all that, I'm saying all that because I'm all for uh, accuracy, historical accuracy, when we're understanding the scriptures. It's not wrong and good to know those things. But I really feel like a lot of times, you know, people get a little bit of that know-it-all syndrome, you know, especially around Christmas. Someone say, well, if you really understood it, then it would look like this, not like your little nativity scene. The point that I want to make with that is, is none of those things that I just said really changed the basic understanding of what we're supposed to get out of the story of Christ's birth. And that is the birth of Jesus Christ which is this great God-glorifying act of heaven coming to earth, it happened in a low and humble place. And so whether or not the manger was in a barn or a spare room, or if the animals were right there, or they had to be shooed away from Jesus' makeshift bed, whether or not it was like that, that's really irrelevant. The, the fact is that the Lord and Savior of the universe was made humble and poor, going from the throne room of heaven, to lay in a feeding trough. And this is the sign that the shepherds were told to look out for, that he'd be lying in a manger. So these shepherds in verse 9, they're described as being surrounded by the glory of the Lord, and they're fearful, but told not to fear because their Savior has come. When we think of that kind of fear, uh, you know, it, it's it's frequent that when we talk about fear, we often say, well, it's like, oh, it doesn't mean fear of fear, it means, it means awe and reverence. And that's not untrue, but oftentimes, Fear, the way we understand fear, is the right word. You know, it's terrifying to think about yourselves in the hands of, of an angry God. Now, this isn't an angry scene, but when we're faced with our sin and we understand the glory and greatness of God and that we're not worthy of it, that can fill us with genuine fear. And that's not really wrong, but when we're told not to fear as they were, we can see that not just as a condemnation or a conviction, but being told not to fear because our Savior has come, those are words of comfort. So when anytime you see that, do not fear from Christ in the, in the Word, I would just uh, I encourage you to think of those as words of comfort. Now back to the shepherds, I think we're, uh, we're kind of conditioned to think of, of shepherds highly. Of course, we, we refer to Christ as he refers to himself as the great shepherd. And certainly when we think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, um, we think of a shepherd as a provider and a protector, and they are. A shepherd is a provider and a protector for his sheep. But as, as you may know, shepherds in, in uh, Israel at this time, they would have been known as shifty and untrustworthy guys. These are, these are Jews. Anybody that ever worked on docks, I don't mean anything against you, but these are like the dock workers, if you have that in your mind. They're shifty and untrustworthy guys. If you don't have that as in, as in your mind, then don't put it in your mind. I just Anyway, that's it. Shepherds, again, uh, you know, shifty, untrustworthy guys, they're among the lowest of the blue-collar workers of the day. And so they're, they're out there tending to these animals on a regular basis. And because they're out tending to the animals on a regular basis, they may not have been able to participate in religious activities in which the ceremonial animals were used. So they might have this, this uh, reputation of being unclean because of that. 
Again, we've got this picture of a great God-glorifying birth of our Savior being announced to people who are marginalized. And they're marginalized to a certain degree, but rightfully so, in a way, because they're dirty, rotten sinners in need of a Savior, just as anyone else is. Jesus ministered to them as, uh, because, as he said in Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. People who call on the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, they are people that know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And I think that's likely the case with these shepherds, these marginalized guys, these dirty, rotten guys out in the field. They know their need, and so the angel, as the angel tells them in verse 11, they need to know that it is their Savior that has come. It's our Savior as well. Again, we've set the scene. We have this great, magnificent display of God's glory, His love and mercy, His power. And it's being trumpeted to a bunch of lowly shepherds um, by these magnificent, fear-inducing angels. And there's a great heavenly multitude. This multitude is giving the kind of praise that might be reserved for, for a Herod or a Caesar or a Nero. But instead, they're announcing the coming of a poor baby who's laying in a feeding trough. So from verse 14 again, they're saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. They're declaring that from highest heaven, for God's great glory, peace is coming to earth. And so what do we mean by peace on earth here? As I was saying earlier, I think we all have our own ideas of peace. You know, be it inner peace or societal peace, or peace within your family and loved ones. But what does the peace that comes from the birth of Jesus Christ look like? And I think a lot of times people want to think of Jesus being peaceful as one who walked around talking in smooth, dulcet tones, kind of like Mr. Rogers, making you feel good about yourself all the time. Well, um, let's look at what some of what Jesus says and does throughout his life. This is what the Bible says about him. Slide from Matthew 10. There we go. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Then Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who comes to me and does not hate these things. Now, pretty harsh. Keep going there. We have John 2, 13, 14. Excuse me. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And then from Revelation 19.15, this is uh, talking about Christ returning at the end. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so I read all that um, to ask, does everything that we just looked at from the Word of God fit with our notions of Christ and peace? How would this work? 
Jesus, throughout his earthly life, he's whipping people and telling them to hate their own family. And in the end times, he'll be striking down nations with the fury and wrath of God. He even said the words, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. These are all true of Jesus. So what gives? Did Jesus not know that his, at his own birth, the angels declared on earth peace? And I think if the reality of Jesus' words and behavior throughout his ministry bother us, if that sequence of scriptures that I read just there bothered us, um, that may be dependent on how we understand this Luke 2.14 declaration, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm going to the next slide there. Um, that translation that I just read, that is from the English Standard Version, and you'll see uh, there... No, get in there. Get in no? It's not in there? Okay, yeah, yes, thank you. All right. Um, and then uh, uh, similarly in the NIV there we have that uh, we have the phrase, in honor of peace to those on whom his favor rests. And I think that kind of gets the same meaning there. Uh, I know that a lot of us have to be have to be used to that phrase, in honor, earth, peace, goodwill toward men, as as Linus recited in uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, brought that from the King James Version. Okay, so with that. Um, number one, it's certainly not wrong for us to understand the birth of Christ as an act of goodwill towards men. Um, so in that respect, don't worry, the King James is fine. Um, but uh, the issue here, why these are, are ever so slightly different, is one of the ancient manuscripts. And um, it's uh, specifically whether or not the word for goodwill or pleasure, as it's translated there, it's um, uh, eudokia, I probably mispronounced that, but that's transliteration. It's whether or not the ancient manuscripts had a sigma or what we would write as an S on the end of it. And that does change the grammar of this. It, it, it makes it uh, genitive as the word and it's, it's possessive. Now that's that's too much Greek for you. But uh, point being, um, the ESV and the NIV, um, the most modern translations, they seem to go with the, the manuscripts that would have it as something like among men of God's pleasure. And I think that's probably right. I think that's probably a good way to, to look at it. At least, at the very least, it's theologically right. Because again, look at our problem. At Jesus, uh, at Jesus' birth, the angels declare that there is peace on earth. Yet, Jesus says all sorts of things in his lifetime that don't look altogether peaceful. So with that, what does that mean? What does the peace that is talked about at Jesus' birth mean? It cannot mean peace on our own terms. It's not just political peace. It's not just social peace. Um, yeah, it's not just peace in our families, peace, peace in our jobs, uh, peace with our health or inner peace. You know, remember again, when I was talking about my own uh, inner peace from feeling stuck in life a few years ago. Maybe uh, you can think of situations that lead you to feel that way as well, that you're not at peace because of all that's going on around you and in your life. We want it to include that kind of peace. We do want that. But the source of our peace has to be peace with God. And who ultimately has that peace with God? It's those with God's favor. God's favor um, is for those with, uh, with whom he chooses to take pleasure, those with which he is pleased. Who, how do we have God's favor? We have it as believers in Jesus Christ, as being people of faith. As believers, uh, the peace that we are looking forward to is that of eternal life with God. Um, it describes in Revelation 21, we have the new life in the, in the new heavens and the new earth that he is making for us. 
uh, there uh, God says to us, death shall be no more, neither shall, be there, uh, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that sounds like the peace on earth that we're after right now, right? Uh, but without faith in Jesus Christ, if we don't have that faith, it's clear that we're not going to have that peace. Um, John 3.18, uh, we, we often memorize John 3.16, um, uh, but John 3.18, very soon after, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Good news. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And, and that's just important for us to know. We have these widespread notions of peace this time of year, and that's wonderful. I'm not trying to take away from that. But we have to know our peace is that genuine peace with God, no longer being his enemy. And so if you don't know that you're a dirty, shifty, untrustworthy, thieving shepherd, if you don't know that you're that kind of sinner, or you may be more like an arrogant, self-righteous, persecuting Pharisee, you may be that kind of sinner, or combinations of both. If you don't understand yourself to be as sinful as anyone else who you might despise, and you don't know that you need Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone is your Savior, then you won't have peace on earth. But then the opposite is true. When we do recognize ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, well, when the peace on earth that you and I uh, all need, it's the peace of knowing that while we were still God's enemies, he sent Christ to be born lowly on this earth, to live a perfect sinless life on our behalf, to die for our failure and to keep God's law. And he defeated sin and death and hell and rose again to eternal life. That defeat of sin and death and hell, that is the peace that we are after and that only Christ could earn for us. And so very simply, what do we do with all this? Uh, uh, what we do with all this is what the shepherds are told in Luke 2.20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So we glorify God. Again, glory and peace are, are our two main takeaways today. We glorify God. We don't just do this at Christmas, of course. We do this weekly in our worship. We do this as we live our everyday lives and work and play and rest. Uh, we glorify God and tell of his greatness and that great saving act of Jesus Christ. So at this time, uh, it is um, one of our regular Lord's Supper uh, weeks. And so remember that that is what we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper. Supper. We are declaring his death until he comes. And of course, that death is effective because he was born to live a perfect life for us. So with that said, let me ask the uh, elders to come forward. For those of you who are not aware, friends and family and guests today, again, welcome. This is the first time that I've ever been allowed to do the Lord's Supper, so my apologies to say it's a little stuff. That said, here are these words of institution from the scriptures. From 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let's reflect on the meaning of this sacrament. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he instituted it as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again. And it is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but it is a remembrance of his once and for all sacrifice of himself in his death and our sins. It's not just a mere memorial of his sacrifice. It is a means of grace by which God feeds us through the crucified, resurrected, and exalted Jesus Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit present with us and through faith. So he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and our endeavors to serve him in holiness. And the sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sin and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The bread and the wine represent the crucified body and the shed blood of the Savior, which he gave to his people. And in this sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful, <coughs> that he is faithful and true to fulfill the promises of his covenant. And he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation, to renewed consecration, to renewed holiness, and to more faithful obedience. The supper is also a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his body. As scripture says, we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So the supper, it anticipates the consummation of the ages, the completion of the ages when Christ returns to gather all his redeemed people at the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, to crucify the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as he become, becomes those who bear his name, as he becomes those who bear his name. And so as a word of invitation and the privilege as a minister of Christ to invite all who are right with God and his church through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the Lord's table. If you have received Christ and are resting upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to you in the gospel. If you are a baptized and professing communicant member in good standing of, <clears throat> of a church that professes of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ. And if you live penitently and seek to walk in godliness before the Lord, then this supper is for you, and I invite you in Christ's name to eat the bread and drink the cup. Now, at the same time, as we read God's word, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so if you are not trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are not a member of a faithful Christian church, and if you are not living penitently and seeking to walk in godliness before the Lord, then I would ask you to let the, the elements pass you by, not to approach the holy table of the Lord. 
but this warning is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite away from the table of the Lord, as if it were for those who are free from sin. Rather, in fact, this table is for sinners that our Lord gives this supper as a means of grace. And through these elements of bread and wine, our Lord graciously gives himself and all his benefits to everyone who eats and drinks in a worthy manner, discerning the body of the Lord. It is one thing to eat and drink in a worthy manner. It is very different to imagine ourselves as worthy to eat and drink. And so we do not come to the Lord's table as if we were worthy and righteous in and of ourselves, but we come in a worthy manner when we recognize that unworthy sinners uh, need Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if we consciously discern his body has been given for our sins, we hunger and thirst after Christ and give thanks for his grace, trust in his merits, feeding on him by faith and renewing our covenant with him and, and his people here today. So we examine our minds and our hearts to determine whether or not we have that discernment, whether it's ours, and to the end that we may partake to the glory of God and the growth and grace of Christ. So with that, let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your mighty power and grace in bringing salvation, and we confess that we are unworthy to come to this table because of our own lack of righteousness. We affirm our trust in your grace, in Christ's righteousness and his mediation and his intercession on our behalf. And we pray to the Lord, pray to you, Lord, that you would grant your gracious and effectual work of your Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for your body and blood. We thank you for this bread and wine. We request that you would give it to us for its intended purpose, that we might declare your death until you come, and that you would nourish and feed us in faith. So our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and gave to his disciples, as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you.
Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for men. Um, in the same manner, uh, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, and I, ministering in his name, give this cup to you. said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Christ through whom we have forgiveness of sins. We understand and we acknowledge that uh, we are not saved to be individuals with you, but rather we are saved as a body with Christ as our head. And so as God's people, we pray that you unite us to one another and make us of one mind, that would be the mind of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us the ability through your Holy Spirit, through faith, to live as a living sacrifice to God. And that uh, this sacrament would be effectual that we be edified and strengthened as God's people in faith. In Jesus' name.